And hello, everybody. It is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. On today's episode... I was a poor kid with a camera and a desire to do two things. One, see the things I'd never seen. And two, tell good stories. David Hoffman is a documentary filmmaker and a prolific one. Over the last 50 years, he has directed and or produced a couple of hundred documentaries on all kinds of subjects. He's been at it ever since he first picked up a 16mm camera in the early 1960s, and by now his work forms an audiovisual record of the American experience over the last half century. Though David would be the first to tell you that it is all just one guy's take. Because my job is not to tell the truth. My job is to tell my truth or my story my way. And your job as the audience is to know that I'm doing that and appreciate it or, or not. But not to believe. You see what they saw in that movie? That's the truth. Oh, boy. I first had David Hoffman on this show a couple of years ago with his friend and fellow filmmaker John Vincent Barrett. I spoke to them uh, about a documentary that they made together called Everything Which Is Yes. It told the story of the 2008 fire that destroyed David's house in the Santa Cruz Mountains, and with it, his huge collection of photographs, record albums, books, and the original prints of a lot of his films. At that point, we talked a bit about David's life behind the camera, but there was so much more that we couldn't cover, I had to invite him back. Thus, the new interview that we are going to listen to today. We started by talking about David's early life in Levittown, Long Island, which has been described as the country's first mass-produced suburb. It was built just after World War II to accommodate the beginnings of the baby boom. And it was really important in my life because, first of all, all of us came from the city, quote-unquote. We were one-third Jew, one-third Italian, one-third what we used to call other. <laughs> and... We were uh, stuck in these houses with no trees, if you can imagine, mud all around, four types of houses, A, B, C, and D, all exactly the same. If you were a veteran, nothing down and 30 bucks a month. If you were not a veteran, $60 down and 30 bucks a month. We were coming out of an era when World War II we had won, and we were going into an era of communism. To give you an idea of what communism felt like in Levittown, they blocked the trumpet mouthpieces from the school because they had East Germany printed on the inside. They so protested Pete Seeger that he never got to sing in our school. Every single book was read. What is communist in this book? And that caused a fracture in Levittown between the, we used to call them Catholics and other, and us. Us were not all Jews, some Italians, some Protestants, but we were in favor of expression. They were about closing down expression at all costs, and they weren't kidding. In this era, McCarthy, the famous Senator McCarthy, came to be, and there were signs on streets that said, this person supports McCarthy, this person doesn't. And if you didn't, you got more than spray-painted, you might have to leave town. There were no black people. I never saw a black person. And all of a sudden, a black guy, who was a clarinet player with a white wife, decided to move in. And there were riots. There was, they burned his house down once. And my father and mother, who were artist types, decided this was it. We began to protest. We marched in front of houses. We invited this guy and his wife over to our house. 
And by the time of the early days of the civil rights movement, my colleagues and I were active. When I was 14, I picketed Woolworths because they took money from black people, but they didn't hire black people. Stood out right in front. When I was 15, I got arrested for writing F.U. on a fallout shelter. Wait, 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 David, stop right there. <laughs> F, F who? F you. But who? Who are you aiming oh, at? Oh, that the idea <laughs> that you could have a fallout shelter that protected you from nuclear attack. All of your audience has seen what life was really like at that time from the duck and cover movies that are funny. It's all funny. In fact, the whole thing was funny. But out of Levittown, I learned how to work with other boys. Girls were doing something different at that time. I learned how to direct. I set up a, a little uh, store outside of my garage where we sold stuff. I had a newspaper with five people working for me. Uh, it was entrepreneurial, but without any real entrepreneur in our community, no one to look up to. It shows you that a difficult environment can create great creativity. Inside my family, we were safe. It was a beautiful family. My father was an artist in New York City. He taught at Cooper Union and at Pratt. My mother was a public speaker on social issues of the day who told me once she lost every single thing she ever spoke about. But inside the family, it was free. Outside the family, it was dangerous. You could get beaten up real easy in my school, and there was a fight after school every single day. But nobody ever touched me, and I never touched anybody. Why? One reason. That's what people have told me all my life since. My mouth. My mouth could stick it to you and hit you harder, said a big guy in my school once to me, than he could ever hit with his fists. So my defense mechanism was my articulation of myself. And that today at 72 years old, a filmmaker now 50 years, this is my 50th year. So in a way, I'm honored to be interviewed by you for that reason. I'm still doing that. How well can I say to you something that matters to you so much that you... Won't hit you. (laughs) (laughs) And that's Levittown. And if you want to see more about Levittown, it's one hell of a story what happened there. 50,000 homes in one year. It was suburbia for the first time. Um, Your father was an artist, and I know some things about him from your own account in the movie that we talked about last time you were on this show. Everything which is yes. Your father wanted to be a fine artist, but, and I believe you said this to me, he never had enough guts to sell himself, so he never made any money. Everything is a story. You and I know that. A good part of this audience that's listening knows that everything is a story. How I treat my kid, what do I say when the kid comes home from school and says, I hate it? What do I say? To my wife when she says, I want to lose 20 pounds. What do I say? What do I say when I say, you know, I don't really like my work. Those are one-liners, right? But they're stories. They're all about stories. My father couldn't tell a good story. He couldn't position what he was saying, which was beautiful stuff. He was a highly conscious individual. And because of that, every opportunity where a story needed to be told to influence pocketbooks. He was the first pocketbook book jacket designer. He made the keyhole you look through and you see the outside world, the window that has both an inside and outside, the murderer that's climbing out of the apple, were all illustrations that he did for books. 
but he never told anyone a story. And after 25 years, he was making the same salary. It never went up. He was afraid to ask for a raise. The industry had radically altered. And his partner became the head of pocketbooks and went on to make millions. It's not just the money. It's the ability to tell it to the other guy, girl, in a way that actually affects them. I was struck, though, by that, the way you described your father when we spoke before, never had enough guts to sell himself. So you're saying now that he didn't have the storytelling abilities to make a good story, <laughs> to sell a good story about himself. What, the, what are the guts part? Yeah, the first part of being a good storyteller is to believe that somebody wants to hear your story. And even if they don't, you're going to find a way to make it good enough. So they do. When did you first pick up a movie camera? At the time, and maybe now, there are just a few jobs that anybody can really do. There's lots that appear out there, but young people today know, really, there's a few that I could do or that I want to do. And something about this idea of the documentary, you didn't need to have a union card. You didn't need a big crew. You didn't need a lot of money. You didn't need to write a script. You didn't need a movie theater. You just needed a camera and a sound man and an editing system. That really appealed to me. I didn't have to sit at a desk. Uh, and so the camera that was around at that time was called a Bolex. You can look them up on eBay. There were two versions. One had a button and a little battery, and the other had a wind-up. I bought a wind-up. <laughs> this 50 is bucks. early 60s? Yes, 63. Uh-huh. I bought a wind-up. And there were two subjects in my horizon. One was there was a Fife and Drum Festival nearby in Connecticut that had in the advertising poster how to avoid the draft, join the Fife and Drum Corps. And I, that got me. I thought that was great in 1963. The draft was becoming an issue. And the other was this guy in my school had driven out to a place where there were duck farms on Long Island, which is famous for duck farms. And he found people, migrant workers, living in the duck farms. I heard that story and I said, I think I could take my movie camera and my tape recorder out there for a weekend and let's try and tell that story. That film is called Got to Move. It's on my YouTube channel right now, 50 years ago. And when I finished the film, I sent a copy to the President of the United States. You could do that then. Lyndon Johnson. And one of his people saw it <laughs> and said, this is really good. We ought to, we're fighting the new laws for migrants. Try and use this movie. And they did. And it worked. I got a letter from the secretary of blah, 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 saying your film really affected us here in Washington. Well, well it was actually, um, wasn't it distributed by uh, the Congress of Racial Equality Corps? The, the Congress Civil of Racial Group? Equality was also in this migrant area. Uh -huh. And I met a guy and he said, hey, I'll be your narrator and I'll make sure it gets to Washington. You make it. And we went out there one weekend. I interviewed these people. I heard their stories. I found them, like so many of those southern black church-going poor people, unbelievably articulate. What do I mean by articulate? Is not that they could say a lot of words, but everything had emotion. Every mm. sentence was beautiful. How do you feel living in the duck farm? Oh, not good, sir. Not good, sir. You know what I mean, the way mm. he said it. I watched this film... Uh, as you said, it's online. The way you made it is is very interesting. You have a very poetic eye, and so it's a lot of camera images. First of these rundown dwellings these migrant workers live in, and then you see the people 
going about their daily lives, kids playing, people just walking, doing ordinary things. But there's no narration. There is just this ebb and flow of their own voices that you recorded separately talking about their lives. So you've got these images, uh, little details, a person's worn out shoes, you know, or a kid playing in the distance uh, in this sort of shanty town. And you hear these voices, you know, musing on the hardships usually of their lives. It was a very sophisticated way to treat this subject for a guy who just picked up a Bolex, 23 years old. What were you influenced by? Well, everything that is a detriment to the making of a perfect documentary is an asset. (sighs) At that time, we had no sync sound, Robert. That's the key. Uh The sync sound camera had been invented, but only Albert and David Maisels had used it. We saw it in you 1961. You mean uh, in the field, in, in documentary filmmaking? Yeah, where you could actually see the result when they shot President uh-huh. Kennedy in 1961 for primary. This film was made in 1963. Very few people had a sync sound camera, which weighed 49 pounds and required a Nagra tape recorder alongside it. A lot of people had this Bolex. So as with still photography and documentaries, I've seen and have made myself beautiful documentaries with stills and voice. We both know the power is in the voice. Turn the television off for an evening <laughs> in terms of the picture, you get it all. Mm. You cry when you're supposed to cry, you laugh when you're supposed to laugh. Turn the sound off for an evening, you can barely watch a television commercial, which is designed for you to watch it, even if you're speeding with your remote past it. It's true. <laughs> um, let's listen to the close of this movie, Got to Move. This is the closing narration, sort of an editorial statement at the end of all these images. This movie was shot on the last weekend in May, 1964. Less than a month later, two of the homes you just saw had been destroyed by fire. A man, a community, a civilization either takes responsibility or it does not. There is no middle course. To have seen with one's own eyes the terrible price of indifference, be it global or local, is lesson enough. Or is it? A housewife can shove just so much trash under the rug. Eventually, the room will stink, the furniture will tilt, and people, unable to keep their balance, will fall down. So it mm. ends with that incredible blues tune, which, by mm. the way, was was recorded also by the Rolling Stones, but I like this version much better. <laughs> um, and we said it had no narration during the film, but it did have these opening and closing statements by that narrator. <laughs> you know, what I learned then, and I already knew from storytelling, was go for the gut. Young filmmakers sometimes feel, well, let the film play out. Let the audience feel it. Let them, uh-uh. You go straight for the heart every single time. I believe that in fiction, but I also believe that in documentary. I believe it on the radio. You go straight for the soul of it. And I stated the soul of it in that little piece of writing. Not because I'm a true believer, but because when I saw this, this was disgusting how these people lived. No question about it. And they were such beautiful people without knowing me. Still true today. They let me into their lives They didn't know what a camera was. You have to remember, Robert, most everybody had never seen a 16-millimeter camera, and most everybody, 99% of America, had never been filmed, had never seen TV in their case. 
Well, what documentaries had you seen? I mean, this was so new, this form. And we're talking about the Verite documentary, the documentary where people went out into the world with these handheld cameras. Wasn't well, Verite. Yeah, yeah. Well, well what, <laughs> what had you seen of this new wave of documentaries? I hadn't seen anything. Nothing. This, had, this didn't come from okay. art, although I believe in seeing uh -huh. the other artists. It came from you could actually use the camera to get involved in an environment that otherwise you'd never be in. Hmm. And that's been story even up to today. <laughs> I can get involved in places, and maybe that's true for radio too, where I could never have been there. I'm not a guy who's just interested in chatting, but with the camera and with the tape recorder and with the idea now, unbelievable, that every single thing I put up on my YouTube channel or you do is there forever, forever. Hmm. My God, that's incredible. <laughs> and as the search systems grow, Someday, people will find exactly what they want to see, exactly, no matter how old. You're reminding me again of something you said in Everything Which Is Yes about those early days. I thought up the idea of asking people what the word brotherhood meant. You don't know what it means? No. I really don't know enough about it to express I, an opinion. Well, I don't quite understand exactly what you mean about that, you know? I don't quite understand what you mean by that. At the time, it was thrilling to go into the street with a camera and ask questions that you couldn't ask if you didn't have the camera on your shoulder. I have no idea. Though. None at all, huh? No. Brotherhood is... I was learning that the camera was kind of a weapon, uh, that I could use the camera to provoke. Uh, uh, and since it was new to everyone, it virtually nobody had been filmed, people's reactions were extraordinary. I have no opinion. None? Well, I can't think of any right now. A uh, clip from Everything Which Is Yes, and of course we should credit the terrific editor who put that film together, John Vincent Barrett, friend of yours and now of mine as well. An amazing filmmaker. Uh, and and he intercut, again, your um, reflecting on you know your early days as a filmmaker with a film that you had made, a man-on-the-street film, where you asked people, what is brotherhood? And everybody seems to have been clueless about the meaning of that word. <laughs> but I, I'm interested in that one uh, phrase of yours. The camera is a weapon. Yes, was and is, although very different today. Now that everything's being recorded, you don't get punched, and you don't get the kind of reactions we used to get. I got swung at lots of times. Oh, you can still get punched. It yeah. happens. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But cameras are everywhere. Yeah. We're in a different it's state true, of mind. Um, and I realize the camera is a weapon that allows me to get to the bottom of it. Now, all kinds of filmmakers today know that. And you see documentary after documentary that presents an extreme point of view. And if they do it well, you don't even know it's a point of view. It looks like, quote, unquote, the truth. But I know, and I think we discussed this, but I think you know, there is no such thing as the truth. And in media, there really is no such thing as the truth. How I edited those comments in that film is not fair. Some people answered it beautifully. They showed up in a television commercial that I made for the National Conference of Christians and Jews. This is the outtakes, carefully designed to make a little four-minute piece that just said not everybody seems to have an opinion about this. But it looks in that film like nobody has anything to say. Right, right, right. Yeah, And, and that's fine, because my job is not to tell the truth. My job is to tell my truth or my story 
my way. And your job as the audience is to know that I'm doing that and appreciate it or, or not. But not to believe. You see what they saw in that movie? That's the truth. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, one way to make people think they're looking at the truth is to use the trappings of verite cinema, as is so often done now in reality TV and even in... By the way, I jumped on you for saying cinema verite. <laughs> you did. Uh, and I could... So to explain that, yeah, and then we'll go on. Yeah, that's really important. Yeah, yeah. There were two movements at that time, and here we are. That was 1970. Here we are. Uh, 40-some years later, and those movements are still there. Cinema Verite documentary filmmakers said, I am showing you what is there. Documentary filmmakers like me said, I am showing you what I want to. Mm -hmm. Do you like it? Do you want to hear my story? What was your movement called? Uh, I called <laughs> it directed documentary uh -huh. or, or theatrical documentary. Uh -huh. and there was no good term. But Cinema Verite implied it, and guys like me told the audience, and most people agreed, as soon as a camera's in the room, as soon as an audio guy's in the room, or girl, everything changes. Mm. The whole thing changes. Mm. Watch reality television today. Watch Survivor. Think about 25 cameras standing three feet from those characters. Three feet. With big, huge, wide-angle lenses and a sound man with a boom over their head. Come on. There's nothing verite about this. Oh, not to mention the editing, of course. Severe editing, <laughs> yeah, right, severe. right. Um, well, you know, I was going to take things chronologically, but you're you're forcing me to jump ahead just a little bit in your career to the movie that most, uh, you know, exemplifies what you're talking about. King Murray, you mean? King Murray. And I did want to spend a lot of this interview talking about King Murray because um, it's the film of yours that probably created the biggest sensation. And of the films of yours that I've watched, it's the one that remains the most crazy disorienting, weird cultural artifact. I mean, like nothing else out there that I've ever, ever seen. I'll let you take over, David, but just to give a little background. This is a film that came out in 1969. It was set up like a documentary about an insurance salesman from Long Island. He lived near you, right? Right, 10 minutes from me. Guy you knew? Well, he came in to sell me insurance. <laughs> That's how I met him. <laughs> on a Tuesday, on a Friday, I was on my way to Las Vegas. Oh, my God. So you... And I want to know how this came about, but I'll just tell people about the, the basic facts of the film, and then we'll go from there. You made this film about this kind of hard-driving, full-of-himself uh, insurance salesman from Long Island who takes a mini-vacation, a kind of junket to Las Vegas, in which he carouses, lives it up, and talks a lot about himself. But it's a very strange film, because not only are you visible in it and your sound man, Jonathan Gordon, co-director also... But there's a lot of talk about actually making the film, and it becomes more and more unclear how much of this is real and how much of this is fake. How much is this guy, whose name, by the way, is Murray King, which you inverted for the title of the film, King Murray, how much is he just making a character out of himself uh, in order to, I don't know, blow himself up for the camera or just have fun? How much of this is what he actually did? How much did you just create this whole situation from scratch? Let's set the mood. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the mood, the time, 1970. Or 69, actually. Six, yeah. Well, 70 yeah. when it comes out. Okay. King Murray is the time of Kent State. King Murray is the time of pro or anti-America. If you wore a flag on your shirt or on your car, you were for the Vietnam War. If you didn't, you were against it. The V sign meant dope. 
young people. This was a completely fractured society. Mm -hmm. That wasn't a story that particularly interested me. That fracture, the political fracture, I wasn't interested in that. But I was very interested in outrageous stories and in sticking it to all the people who said Cinema Verite was real. I was going to make a documentary that was some real and some not, and you never know which. And what happened as a result is I got 10 great reviews, including one of the 10 best films of the year in 1970 in the Wall Street Journal with the film Salesman, which was a Cinema Verite documentary quite famous. I won the Cannes Film Festival Simon de la Critique, the Critics' Prize. It ran in France for a year. It ran in Sweden for a year and a half. And it ran in New York for five days. It was so resented that Pauline Kael in the Daily News said David Hoffman should be thrown out of America for making this movie. People called it anti-Semitic. I was shocked. People saw it as political. Anti-Semitic because Murray's Jewish. He's Jewish, and he's an outrageous, loudmouth Jew. He's kind of a big mocker or wannabe big mocker. Yeah. Now, <laughs> if you look at the movie, something very interesting occurs, which is young people at the time... They weren't offended by Murray King. He was a character, and they liked that he was a character who talked about himself. Older people were fractured immediately. This is either an embarrassment to America, this is the thing we hate about America, which is why the French gave it that prize, said some people, or this is um, the America that really we ought to take a look at, we ought to change. So I was making a documentary with another guy. The two of us said, we're going to put ourselves in the movie. We're going to show you what we direct. You're going to hear us talking. We're not going to hide it. And at the time, that was a very big deal. Today, with the documentaries that everyone is watching, it's still a big deal. How often in Survivor do you see the director, never, by the way, asking a question of a character that gives you an indication as to why the character behaved that way? That mm. thing is heavily directed, mm. brilliantly directed, <laughs> as you said, edited to 100, 100 to 1. And we're still living in an age where people don't know it. So my film came out. I was told I was going to be the – I was quoted as the Fellini of America. And I had a job as a result to go to Hollywood. The producer of Sting invited me to Hollywood to make three more like it. Oh, The Sting with Robert Redford? The famous and, movie. Uh, yeah. And I went to Hollywood. I left my home in New York. And everything about Hollywood scared the hell out of me. I had no idea. The drugs were different than marijuana. These were other drugs that I didn't know anything about. The women were the most beautiful women I ever saw, and they stuck it right in your face. I had no idea what to do with that. The money. I had never seen money like this. I went to estates in Beverly Hills. I lasted six weeks. Ran home to New York, told my friends, you know, I can't. Do this, and I moved to Maine. Now, now David, uh, I want to get back to King Murray, but I can't help but notice something. We talked about you're saying your father didn't have the guts to sell himself as an artist, and here you go to Hollywood, and did was it a lack of guts on your part? Totally. <laughs> I could have taken advantage of that. <laughs> they asked me, what's the second idea for a movie? And I said, I'm going to put 12 psychiatrists on a boat going down the Hudson for two weeks. They can't get off the boat. They're in the middle of the heart of darkness, and let's see how these 12 psychiatrists interact. And the guy in Hollywood, <laughs> Edgar Sherrick, said to me, brilliant idea, David, go for it. Scared the hell out of me. The whole mm. thing, Hollywood scared me. Mm. The power, the, the power, the money, and it just was, yeah, I was scared. What about making up a movie from scratch? I mean, you'd always stuck to material that was at least based on reality and set in reality. Um, you know, some of these were 
more straight documentaries. Some of these were subversive films like, you know, King Murray. But in Hollywood, you're going to be asked to just sort of make up something from whole cloth, right? I'm not opposed to making anything up ever. Okay. In 1974, during the oil crisis, Mobile Oil, my first big client, hired me to create real people stories about oil men to show how hard it was. Mm -hmm. There was no doubt it was hard. But my job was to create commercials that showed how hard it was. I had no problem with that at all. <laughs> I had no problem with any of it except anti-smoking I could do, but pro-cigarettes, when they came to me, I couldn't work for them, hmm. and anti-abortion. The anti-abortion movement for me was, I, I couldn't do it with heart. But a student once said to me, would you interview Adolf Hitler and would you make a movie on him, Mr. Hoffman, <laughs> with that tone of voice? And I said, you know, I'd give it a try. I'd meet him. I'd see what I think. And if I felt I could do it, I would do it. My guess is I couldn't feel that guy. <laughs> but I would sure not reject somebody because their political view wasn't mine. I've done beautiful movies on Christians. I'm not Christian, but I really admire them. Beautiful movies on right-wing gun people. Not such a good movie on uh, Abby Hoffman. I had the chance to do a movie with some other guys on Abby Hoffman. I couldn't understand what he was talking about. Being a yippie being an acid head, having people run into the crowd in the 68 Chicago convention and get beat up, that was inconceivable to me. Mm. I never understood mm. Abby Hoffman until way later. Mm. Now I think he's great. Mm. Mm. Um, you told me that you make films that make people look good. You have no desire to do a takedown, you know? Now, if you had made a film about Hitler, would you have had to break that? Uh... I wouldn't have made the movie <laughs> because I'm not... The take, you know what, Robert? The takedown is too easy. Uh -huh. And everyone in your audience ought to know it. It is really easy to make, was it, what did what did Michael Moore make, uh, Fahrenheit 9-11? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Too easy to make that movie. Mm. All of Michael Moore's easy, mm. movies are too easy. And I love Michael Moore. I think he's a fabulous entertainer. Mm -hmm. But it's too easy to make fun of the other guy. Mm. I can tell you. Today, I could do it in a second with a little editing and the right kind of question, and then cut your question out, which mm. is embarrassing to you. Much harder to make somebody so honorably beautiful that you're touched by it, even though they have other sides of themselves I don't show. Mm. In my film, Eisenstadt, Germany, 1980, won an Emmy. Uh, Alfred Eisenstadt was a cheap, little, nasty German guy, but a great genius. He is a famous photographer. Uh, people probably know him best for the photograph he took on VJ Day at the end of World War II with the uh, sailor kissing the woman in the street. But he took many other very famous photographs. Mal Monroe, Seville Loren, Life Magazine's number one photographer. And Joseph I, Goebbels, actually, speaking of the Nazis. Yeah, right very be famous picture of Goebbels. Before he left Germany in 1936. Right. He was a cheap, selfish, mean guy who also had, because he was five foot two. Because he was somehow unobtrusive with the camera, the ability to get in there with Marilyn Monroe and Sophia and these other people and have them not mind Izzy. Izzy was a charming little guy. And I went for that. And I set up a scene in the movie, one of my best. And he called me. He said, David Hoffman, you're a terrible person when I finished <laughs> that scene. The scene was I took him into a German museum. It's in the film. And they immediately block him. They put their hand up in front of his camera. I knew they would because it said right outside, no cameras, no photography. I didn't tell that to Izzy. He manipulated his way into the main office and showed the lady through the camera the picture he wanted to take. And as he showed her, he snapped the picture. 
So he had the picture he wanted. While she's saying, no, 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 I'm sorry. No, 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 you can't do this. It's a glorious ability to manipulate the environment for your own end. Uh, He hated me for making that scene. Then when the film opened, it opened at the Smithsonian on a great night where Alfred Eisenstadt was being honored. And the audience saw the film, and they stood up and they cheered. And the first question from the journalist was, it was so brilliant how you negotiated your way to take this magnificent picture of that German museum. And Alfred looked at me and he smiled and he said, just like this to the audience, yes, I am brilliant. (laughs) But I don't care about that side of Alfred Eisenstein. Who wants to see that? You want to see Alfred Eisenstein's greatness. Well, no, the whole anecdote is great. I mean, uh, about the way you, you know, Captured that moment of you know, created of deceit, or created That's, that I moment created of moment. deceit, and then watched him in it. That's watched him very in it, good, and then watched him take credit for it. Um, yeah, take credit. For it. <laughs> right. That happens all the time. Yes, when it's bad. You know, Ted Turner had me do five portraits of America as part of his great series, Portrait of America, and he had a rule: when you got done doing this one hour on the state, I'm going to give you. He said, the people in that state better like your movie, or you're dead in the water. You're never going to get hired by me again. And he would say that in the 15 seconds that you got to see Ted Turner. So he'd give me Kansas. And he says, you know, it's the most boring state in America. You're good at this. You go do it. And I made a beautiful film on Kansas. And they showed it to farmers and states, legislatures when it was over. And people were crying. And I knew I had succeeded. It isn't that there weren't other stories to tell about Kansas. But I told one that was biblical in the way wheat was harvested. And a portion of that is on my YouTube channel. Mm. And your YouTube channel, how would people find it? It's all in a day, so it's www.youtube.com forward slash all in a day. It has 380 films. So once you get within it, you kind of search what you might want to see. King Murray would be King Murray, you could find. They couldn't um, see the whole thing, could they? I think the whole thing oh, is on there. Oh, it's on there? Okay. Yeah. And by but the way, I want to see it with good audio, okay. good speaker system, <laughs> ideally big screen, not on your computer when you're also answering instant messages. <laughs> By the way, I want to remind the audience that uh, this is the 7th Avenue Project on Central Coast Public Radio, 88.9 KUSP. I'm Robert Polly, and I'm talking today to the filmmaker David Hoffman, who has been at it for 50 years, creating um, hundreds of films. You have been either the director, uh, producer, or director of photography, or all of the above in in all of these, uh, um, this amazing range of films. We barely scratched the surface. All kinds of documentaries, the kind of um, portraits of ordinary people, what people would call ethnography, uh, you know, uh, trips all around the world, uh, documentaries taken in, like, military aircraft. But you know, Robert, right now. I haven't. Hey, David, I'm still going on with the list. Right now is the first time I can tell you that I'm making the documentaries with no backer. All the mood, everything you're talking about needed money. Mm Mm-hmm. And my ability to get that money is one of my talents, that's for sure. Today, I don't need money for the first time. Because the equipment's so cheap? Equipment costs nothing. Uh-huh. And YouTube gives you an instant audience if you uh-huh. do it right. That's true. So, But it doesn't pay back, does it? Well, it's starting to. <laughs> okay. You can sell your DVDs on Amazon. Yeah. YouTube is now beginning mm. to allow advertising mm. for everybody. And I make... Um, $250 a month from the ads that run with my films. And I know people making 25 50 bucks a month, but mm-hmm. starting. It's something. But it something. doesn't cost you much to make either. No. Huh. 
By the way, I I didn't get through my list of just giving people a sense of the kinds of films you've made. You've made portraits of famous people, like the aforementioned photographer Alfred Eisenstadt, but also uh, people like Joan Baez and Bob Dylan, Earl Scruggs, Johnny Cash, Ronald Reagan. You did something on Ronald Reagan before he was president. Is that right? Uh, Jimmy Doolittle, the famous Air Force pilot uh, from World War II. This great concert that you arranged and then filmed uh, in uh, Sing Sing Prison with B.B. King, one of his best concerts ever, and certainly one of the best prison concert films ever. Mm. No doubt about that, Mm. right? Mm. Um, And then, like I say, I keep promising I want to get back to King Murray because it it, it stands out uh, to this day as a truly unusual film. Yes. So let's talk about that for a minute longer. Um, I want to give people just a little sense of what Murray himself sounds like, this insurance salesman from Long Island who has become the star of his own movie and the king of his own kingdom. In fact, he uh, spends this time uh, in Las Vegas in a big suite at Caesar's Palace. Seems so appropriate, this tacky suite. Doing tacky stuff. Um, This is a scene where he meets some girls, or at least he seems to meet some girls on a tennis court. And he's trying to talk them into coming back to his suite later on. Let's try and get the girls to go to the massage room with us. You happen to be here for a few days, but you and you got a lovely room at the Caesars Palace, but you haven't seen our suite. Our suite is nicer than anyone you've seen in Hollywood or in the movies. So what's happening in your room? We're making a movie, making a movie. You object to being in a movie? Are you kidding? <laughs> We're not go- at all, not no, at all. Do no. I get paid for it? That's what really you wanted, uh, interests me. And what do you want to get paid? Money or uh, clothes? <laughs> Green money. When you see this place, you'll be bedazzled. Really bedazzled. <laughs> and I'm going to have this man masseur come up. Man, he's about a big, strong guy. He's going to give me a massage. He'll give you a massage. massage. Yeah. Right. And if you want, maybe he'll give you girls a massage, too. But he'll give me a massage, maybe he'll massage yeah. you girls. Well, it's only optional. Wait right? a minute. Who's going to take it? Right. Yeah. You haven't been to see the bar. before. No, never. Wait till you Why see are you so bar. nervous? Because you have the camera right at my face. Go, go be there. You girls could drink scotch. Rye, whatever you want, martinis. I'll get my massage, and then I'll go put my suit on, and we'll go down to the pool. Meantime, you see this tremendous suite and have a few drinks on me. So we're hearing Murray King talking to these girls on a tennis court, inviting them up to his suite, but we're also hearing the voice, is it of Jonathan? Me. Oh, it's you. It's you saying, we're making a movie. Invite the girls. Setting up this bizarre scene. Totally. Which leads to these girls, all in bikinis, kind of sitting around while Murray gets a massage from some burly masseur. It is one of the weirdest things I've ever seen. (laughs) What was that? What what were you up to? What were you up to? Murray would do anything because he wanted to have a business card that said producer. He, like many other people, believed if he had a card from a film company that said producer, girls would be his favorite. He'd be their favorite guy. But he had a wife and he had children, and he really actually didn't do, and you see in the movie, anything. He just flirted. He was a flirt. Um, I am a troublemaker, loudmouth myself in this movie. Hey, Murray, why don't you ask those girls up? Uh, We're making a movie. We're making a movie. So I am out, bold out front, being... The director. Mm-hmm. Am I different from Michael Moore or any others? You know I'm not. They're all doing it. They're doing it right now on mm. television. Mm. But I stuck myself in the movie, which I felt was very courageous. But the reviewer for The Nation magazine was furious at the end. He said, David Hoffman is not only a fake, but his movie is a fake. Truth of the matter is, it wasn't a fake. 
I did set up scenes, but the character you see is the essence of this overblown Long Island salesman who at the end of the day never hurt anybody, never really seduced the girls, never really made the money. He just was blowing hard and having a good time doing it. <laughs> so I thought sweetly of Murray King. When the film first aired, he sued me to block it. He felt it made him look like a buffoon. And the press was supporting that to some extent. It went to court, and I had enough evidence that he couldn't stop the film. And a Long Island University asked him to come and talk about it. And he went, and he spoke, and he found those kids, college kids. They wanted to know how he made a career. How did he get away with having so much fun out of life? They didn't see it as bad at all. So Murray changed, and he got that producer card, and he went on and he used it. And not only that, we were in Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas, gaudy as you can get, run by the mob. I was thrown out of town at the end of that movie. Murray King sold them all insurance. <laughs> by the way, they took your uh, undeveloped film, didn't they, for a while? They did. I am a complete innocent. I'd never been in Las Vegas before. It is still a shockingly horrifying experience to me, even though they made it a family place. This is really weirder than my movie. And here we are in Las Vegas having this experience, and all of a sudden a guy puts a gun in my back on the fourth day of shooting. We were coming to the end, and he said, Mr. Hoffman, come to the room right now. And I went up to the room. He had a silk tie and a white silk tie and a white silk suit. And he took all the film, every roll. He said, you're not keeping any, are you, Mr. Hoffman? I said, no, no, no. He said, you're going to be taken out by the sheriff, delivered to the airport, and you're out of this town tonight. There was no talking to him. There was nothing. I came back. I told my wife and all my filmmaker buddies, I just made the best film of my life. I made a real feature film. I did something dramatic, and I lost it all. Three months later, in my little house in Levittown, up comes a limo without any warning, out gets this same guy. And he says, Mr. Hoffman, do you remember me? His name was Jay Sarno. I went out to shake his hand, and he pulled his hand back. He wore white gloves. He said, here is your film, developed and produced at CFI in L.A., the best lab, synced up. Would you like any money to complete this movie? I said, uh, no. And I got handed the film. They had, were afraid of something that I had filmed, that I had no idea of. I was scared. It turns out they didn't give me any money, but I managed to finish the film. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, by the way, at least the finished version, the edited version, has no scenes of casinos. It's just the scenes inside the suite and around the swimming pool, you know, mostly. And, you know. They said no cameras in the casino, uh -huh. and there were no hidden camera possibilities at right. that time like right. there are now. Right. So we didn't do it. So. We were just a culture of... Las Vegas and these guys, by the way, some of the guys in the film were not nice guys like Murray King. They were rough guys. Uh -huh. There's a scene, a sexual scene towards the end that's brutal in the way the man talks about women. I hated him then and I would hate him today. Mm -hmm. And I purposely put that in there mm -hmm. because at the time the women's movement was just beginning, 1971, 1972, just beginning. And uh, I just felt that was my statement about it. Mm -hmm. To leave that guy in. But these thugs who took your film proceeded to uh, sink it and develop it, which is expensive stuff. Oh. So they saved you a ton of money. Oh, a ton. I could not have finished the film. <laughs> the film was finished by $50,000 grant, quote unquote, by investor Liam Lowen. Liam Lowen 
who later went on to make three or four hundred million dollars in the market, was one of the predominant students protesting Columbia University. The Columbia protests of 1968 and 69 were famous. Kids had their heads smashed. They stayed in the buildings and they put him in a mental hospital. And in the mental hospital, he began to read the Wall Street Journal. He was 22. And he learned about stocks. He figured them out and he started investing his college money, 10,000 bucks. By the time I met him, he had $3 million. And I asked him, would you like to be the executive producer and back the film? And he did. And that's how King Marty got completed. Mm. I'm still very proud of it. And John Vincent Barrett, my colleague who I did everything, uh, which is yes, he wants to make a film about the making of King Marty. Mm. Well, I, if I were a backer, I'd back him because it's a fascinating story. And we don't have time to get into all the, the cool details. It is a subversive film. It undercuts the whole idea of a documentary. It makes the viewer guess at every moment what is going on here, who's in charge. Is any of this the real Murray? In fact, you mentioned that you met him, what did you say, on a Tuesday? And by Friday, you were flying to Las Vegas? Yeah, I had my little office in my film company, and he came in to sell me insurance. And I looked at this guy talking to me and the phrases which are in the film that he uses to sell insurance. And I just said, you're a movie. He said, I am a movie. He said, I said, you got anything going on in your life? He said, this Friday, I'm going to Las Vegas. I said, I'll be there. I showed up at the airport in Las Vegas and uh, later on shot the day in the life of Murray that is the opening of the film. Mm-hmm. Him at the office getting at ready the office. for his That's trip. That's getting ready for that day. Yep. Yep. And that is an amazing office. He makes amazing comments. Every one of those folks are Long Island caricatures, mostly Jews and Italians, who were mostly the people that we knew. And there was no ill... Will meant by me in showing that. That was just my culture. Mm. I didn't see it as, mm. I saw it as kind of blunt in a way, but not good or bad. Mm-hmm. But a lot of Jews and Italians felt offended. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not like, you know, you don't say anything about them. You just let Murray do his thing and you follow him around. Uh, and then, of course, you put ideas in his mind but out in Las Vegas, including this bizarre massage scene. There's- just remember, Robert, in 1968, they made an incredibly important documentary for television which showed American soldiers taking a match to a Vietnamese village. It ran on prime time, it shook up America, and 15 years later, the cameraman admitted that somebody in the film crew had suggested, look, we know you do that from time to time, why don't you do it here? Oh, wow. What was the name of that documentary? I don't know. It's the, Quezon uh-huh. was the time, and it's oh. the most famous mind-altering thing about the Vietnam War. American soldier with a cigarette lighter lighting a uh, house that could be burned by mm. a... It was suggested by the filmmaker in that case. Yes. So King Murray, you know, makes it plain that the filmmaker in this case is suggesting a lot of things. By the way, another thing that gets discussed on film is whether it would sort of sell better if they have a mildly sexual scene of Murray and this bikini-clad woman who he's supposedly picked up on the tennis court in a shower. And they go back and forth... There's a lot of discussion, and finally he gets in the shower, and she sudses him down, and, you know, it, it's not very erotic <laughs> at all. all. No, they're not naked, by the way. They're, they're wearing their Fully bathing clothed, suits. bathing yeah. suits, yeah. Yeah, but it's so weird. It's so weird. And then there's the, a remark that Murray makes near the very end. I'm going to play it right now. You think anybody's going to believe all this? You, you think they're going to think you made it up for the film or what? That's right, we made it up for the film. But I know you can cut this part out, right? I said I made up for the film. Everything we said before was a lie. And you can cut this out, and nobody will ever hate it anyway. 
What a moment of filmmaking that is. Yeah. The character in front of the camera says, it's all a lie, which we know it isn't because no one could be that good an actor. We know some of it's the truth. And he says, but you're going to cut it out because you're going to manipulate. And all of that, to say that in a film, even today, I ask you, who on television with all the documentaries we're watching or on YouTube or in the theaters, what few documentaries are left, admits blatantly that the filmmaker is making the story maybe more real. I'm not saying that it's not real to involve a filmmaker. I'm just saying that somebody caused this to occur other than the character in Mm. front of the camera. Mm. Well, you know, um, among the many uh, critics who reviewed it was Vincent Canby in the New York Times, and he included a review of Salesman, the famous Maisel's Brothers cinema verite film, a masterpiece of the verite form, where they followed a handful of uh, Bible salesmen, traveling salesmen, around the South while they tried to sell these Bibles. Beautiful film. And your film, which is like a rebuke to the whole style, right? And Vincent Canby wrote at the end of uh, that uh, review, The time may not be far off when there will be an 8mm camera in every closet and when all of us will be living our lives, shaping our experiences, timing our crises, and resolving them with an eye to whether or not we can photograph them. We may not find truth, but it's one way of reaching toward immortality. Mm, Boy, was that true. Was that ever true? And boy, was your film ever a prophecy about reality television. I agree. We're living in the world that you were already sensing, you know, in that film. Yep, and I still feel that the folks that I watch on YouTube very often are presenting their lives Mm -hmm. directed by them. (laughs) Both are true. (laughs) It is their lives. But it's directed by them. It's not some accident. You know, the cat that falls into the water in the pool gets a lot of views. But that's in no way a documentary. That's just a lucky moment and becomes, quote, unquote, viral. The last thing I want for my films is to be viral. Mm. I don't want to be viral. Mm. I want to reach the people I want to reach or who are interested. And I want to really affect them. And you can tell on YouTube how long someone has watched the film. So I know how, what percentage of the audience seeing King Murray is watching is the entire dropping movie. out or watching the whole In thing. my case, very often, in the case of King Murray, it's 25%. One in every four people who click on that watch the whole hour. Wow. That's terrific. Huh. I would think that film is not everybody's cup of tea. That's for sure. I agree with you, and you said it better than me. It's the crazy, odd, at the moment, so strange. And yet, you do feel, tell me if you disagree, that you know Murray King at the end in a way you would not know him if you went to his house for dinner or he sold you insurance. Yeah, I think if you watch the film and really catch its meaning, you see a guy who is, on the one hand, he's a salesman. He's selling himself. That's what you're supposed to do. He's the king of his own little movie kingdom here. And yet, when push comes to shove, he's actually pretty nice and he doesn't really do anything bad in the film. And even talk, there's even a discussion of how he doesn't like how women are being talked about like property at some point, even though he's trying to play the playboy also in this movie. It is historical (laughs) because at that moment, the generation that was allowing more flexibility in how people behaved was coming out. Mm -hmm. I came from the 1950s. There were two people, winners and losers. Winners were males largely. Christian, largely, Anglo, largely, kept everything in check, largely, knew how to fight and be strong and hold their emotions in. Everybody else was a loser. 
except my generation, the 60s generation, rebelled against that. And by 1970, enough people were beginning to say, Murray King is an odd duck, but I'm going to let him be an American. He's okay. And that changed everything. And today, the breadth of freedom of individuals is partially based on these kind of outrageous films, Marjo, the documentary from Howard Smith in 1972. About the evangelist. The evangelist. Yeah. Um, and others that uh-huh. showed weird characters. There was no television doing that then. Right. Television didn't show. It showed Walter Cronkite saying, and that's the way it was, May 3rd, 1970. And that's what you saw. Well, yeah. And, and you know, the kind of documentary that you made uh, most often about the kinds of ordinary everyday people, which I don't really like those phrases, but that's how people call them. You made a film that got quite a bit of notice about a kid directing his own movie, an 11 or 12-year-old directing his own movie with a Super 8 camera in his backyard with a bunch of other kids, mm. A Day with Timmy Page. A Day with Timmy Page. Which is kind of a legendary film now. It sure is. Uh, you made films about, um, well, again, we say man on the street. You made a film about a cowboy was it in Montana? You made um, another film that I think has survived and will continue to survive about um, mountain music in the Appalachians. Uh, this is called Music Makers of the Blue Ridge. One of your first films, right? And it's a right. It's a timeless piece of of that kind of filmmaking that goes into another culture and records. What Otherwise, a moment. Disappearing that film is now traditions. in the Library of Congress. Yeah, and it this is. is about these great musicians, especially this guy who sort of took you by your hand and led you through uh, this region of North Carolina, introducing you to all kinds of down-home musicians, extraordinary musicians, and his name was... Bascom Lamar Lunsford, 82 years old, <laughs> and I was 24 when I shot it. <laughs> and, and by the way, a lot of people would call this cinema verite. Whether you like that term or not, a lot of you would call that film cinema verite, right? It does feel like... Looks like that. It looks like that, for sure. He's driving you around the countryside, introducing you to his friends and uh, fellow musicians. Here's a little scene from it. Um, The subject is clog dancing, which there's a lot of in this film. A kind of ancestor or relative of tap dancing that these folks do... Bascom himself does it at 82, and he takes you to the home of another guy who is really good. Now, we'll go to the home of Bill McAree in Buncombe County, who's a man almost my age. I'm 83, but Bill, about 76, something like that, and he can do that just like a young man. Well, let's go see him. This is Bill McAree. Johnson boys gonna go, Johnson boys gonna stay, Johnson boys gonna go, never gonna see That was a little excerpt from a film called Music Makers of the Blue Ridge by my guest David Hoffman here on the 7th Avenue Project today. I'm Robert Polly, and we're talking about David's half-century of documentary filmmaking, uh, which included that film very early on in his career, 1964. Very young, one of your first films. You went to the Blue Ridge. What we heard there, David, and I've seen this, so I can can describe it. This guy, Bill McElreath, right? 70-something stand on a stone wall, right, while his friends are playing, and he's doing this, you know, kind of shuffle dance, this this uh, clog dance, and the dude 
has chops. He really does. <laughs> it's Big time. It's really great. Big time. In fact, everybody in this movie, the, all the music is absolutely fantastic. And all of it is the kind of mu- music that probably wasn't there to be discovered, you know, 15 years later. It was the first first network so. television documentary, that one was, ever on Appalachia and bluegrass and mountain music. There had never been anything. There was country a little bit. Nobody ever heard of Johnny Cash, really, at that time. Yeah, yeah. But there was nothing on bluegrass and mountain music. Well, we talked about this film, King Murray, where you question the truth of documentary filmmaking. But this earlier film seems to a viewer like me to just be the raw truth, right? Am I being deluded? Yes. I am. Okay. Yeah. Every single line in that film where Bascom speaks has been picked from hours and hours to show his humor, his mild racism, his genius, his formality, English, Mm. a poor Englishman, and his absolute hate for the people who didn't like mountain people and made fun of them. This is way before the Beverly Hillbillies Mm. made fun of them. Mm. That's who he was. And I took a lot to get that recording. And then he laid out all the people we could record. And after two people were recorded, we realized, holy mackerel, this guy's really good. Everybody he's got is really good. So we didn't argue about the locations. Those are his. But you hear lots of little comments he's making for the movie. Mm -hmm. He's putting things in a way. He gets it. Why does he get it? Because the director and he were partners. I always said that. I haven't gotten the chance to say it lately. Maybe it's a different era. But at that time, I told the person in front of the camera, you are not on one side of the camera and I am not on the other. We are on the same side of the camera. And our job is to communicate a story to our audience together. Mm -hmm. I'm going to make suggestions to you. You make suggestions to me. But our goal is not just to be, that's called cinema verite, I'm just going to be a fly on the wall except I got two people or four people or eight people with lights and mics and cameras, and we're just going to watch you. I say that's baloney. So my, the way I represented it was naive. Nonetheless, what does trickle up from this collaboration with the subject, it still feels like... It's real. There's something real about it's it. It's real. Yeah, yeah. I say reality by a great documentary filmmaker... I'm not saying that I'm one, but I'm damn good. Mm. A documentary by a very good documentary filmmaker gets to the essential truth. How it gets there should not be relevant. Is Survivor telling essential truths about those characters? I think so. Very well done. You're seeing parts of these people, even though they may have pursued it, pushed it, directed it, reshot it, edited it, you're getting an insight into characters that are pretty amazing to people, those of us who are not one of them. So are you saying Survivor is an example of great documentary? Uh, I'm saying Survivor is very revealing, and that's why it's so successful. uh, Because when my colleagues watch it, mostly younger than me, they feel they're watching the character, the snittiness, the the honor, the dishonor, the trickiness of these people. They feel that. Just like when Dallas ran, when Dallas ran for so long on television, and I realized, oh, my God, Although it's completely with actors and it's totally scripted and it's all Hollywood, it's got some essential truths about people's nicenesses and not nicenesses. And that's why it was so successful. Mm-hmm. So I care less how it was done. But I say it to you today, Robert, because I want the audience to know that it is being directed. It tells you something when you go to tell your neighbor, I just saw the truth of water and its X. I just saw the truth of solar energy and its Y. You're not seeing the truth of solar energy. (laughs) You're seeing somebody's truth. And maybe it has an element of real truth to it. But there could be another truth 
just as true with the opposite point of view. Mm. What were your least successful films, in your opinion, by your standards? Where did you fall short? Um, each director has to ask themselves what they're willing to do. To go to Afghanistan and film Orphans with One Leg requires a certain level of courage and stick to Many popular documentaries are popular because they take place over time. I never had the money or the insane drive to take time. My films are two, three, four weeks. Four weeks would be huge. Not two years, five years. HBO's executive producer, the woman who does those great documentaries and makes them happen, told me once. Sheila Nevins. Yeah, Sheila Nevins. She told me once, people love documentaries done over time. Well, I'm maybe not a great documentary filmmaker because I never gave it the time. Why? Because I made a living out of it. I supported my family out of it. It was a job that I loved, and everyone should do a job that they love, but it was never an art form without a job for me. Well, I would argue... Does that speak negatively about me, in your opinion? No, no, no. I mean, first of all, there are good films that are made in a day, a day with Timmy Page. (laughs) King Murray was made in a couple days, right? Right. Uh, And there are films that take years. Hoop Dreams took a long time, right? Four years. Four years, right. And there's the Seven Up series, which is taking a lifetime. Fabulous, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. <laughs> so there's there's room for all those kinds of documentaries, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, you you made a number of films, you know, really for hire, right? I mean, the mobile oil stuff was, was pure advertising. Did you as a lefty, and we've talked about you being a, you know, kind of anti-establishment guy, right? Did for you ever sure. feel bad about representing a big oil company and making and humanizing it with these uh, portraits of oil men? Well... On the very first job, I went to the North Sea in winter on a testing oil rig. It's, it's on my YouTube channel. It's great. And what I saw shocked me. I was a New Yorker. This was hard stuff. And the men who did it were great. They were so great that if I was in a third world country today and I was in trouble and I had to get out, it wouldn't be the government I'd go to. It's the oil men. The oil men know how to get everything in and out of everything, no matter how big it is. And everywhere that I went, specifically Alaska, my second job, 300 miles north of the Arctic Circle, in the middle of winter. And what I saw there was, in New York, we were being told that the oil pipeline would destroy the caribou and Alaska. As soon as I got to Alaska, and I realized this is two-thirds the size of the United States, and this pipeline was doing virtually nothing it was baloney. The left is also equally able to do baloney, and I changed. Hmm. So did I ever make a commercial that uh, I didn't believe? Yeah, I made Quaker Oats commercials once, and I thought the stuff was crappy, and they felt that, and they fired me. <laughs> really? Somehow I couldn't I couldn't fake it. Yeah, I'm not good at that. Yeah, should... I did telephone company stuff for AT&T. But they were man on the street, and I recently did Verizon commercials at the time when I believed Verizon had a longer reach than AT&T. So I went to hard places in California and showed how, oh, yeah, Verizon works here, AT&T doesn't. Mm, mm. I'm not good at lying in any way, not even in this interview. Mm. Not good at it. You know, uh, Errol Morris makes commercials. That's how he gets by. As famous a documentary, uh, yeah. a documentary filmmaker as him has to go and make commercials to really, you know— keep his other work afloat. Fascinating. 
when did Madison Avenue first get the idea to hire someone like you or Errol Morris, a real documentary filmmaker? The first two guys were hired were me and the Maisels brothers. They were both hired by young agency pros who said, oh, my God, this stuff, open quote, looks, close quote, real. At that time, no advertising was hilarious. Yeah. Most people saw it as still selling the product, but it was funny. It's still funny today. You mean in a not good way. Not good way, yeah, but, it was but yet it still sold the product. Yeah, yeah. So my feeling is at that moment, two brilliant guys said, hey, this documentary stuff, this is great. And I got hired to do one in 1970. And the other, Maisel's brothers are still being hired. Well, the brother that's still alive is still being hired Al today. Maisel's, yeah. yeah. Nobody's hiring me these days. My stuff got too outrageous. <laughs> and I'm not, you've got to be a great fake. Uh, we, I try and fake it, but I'm not good at it. We were talking about how you you have the insider's view of documentary filmmaking, that it is contrived, that it is directed, that there is an artist or many you know, conspiring to make something. Mm. It's not just reality coming straight through the camera and out of the screen. Yeah, to let me give you an example of this really eye. good yeah. that will matter to you, I think, and your audience. Yeah. My sound man. The sound man has a microphone close to the person speaking. He is the closest person to that person physically. What does he smell like? What does he look like? Very often, sound men are extremely good-looking men. What is that doing <laughs> to the people in front of the camera? Now I've made a switch. I have a large black ex-football player. He was a very good sound man. Six foot six, 300 pounds, pure muscle. What happens when he's two feet away from the person speaking to the camera? Now I have a third person. She's 26 years old, large-breasted, wearing a T-shirt that shows it. Well, I can tell you, because I found this out at this time, every person who did that job so profoundly affected the result that I had to pick my crews, and this is a rather famous part of my own career, was stating publicly, I cast my crew. What do I want to happen in this film? Do I want to cast a bunch of people like me, just ordinary folk? Do I want to cast anybody spectacular? Do I want to cast a woman? And is that woman going to wear nothing, or is she going to hide herself? And there was a, many military films that I made where I had a woman producer because she could do things we couldn't do. Like what? She, like what? Uh, the films are all on my film on the Marine Corps, First Platoon, my film on the uh, Navy, Wings Over Water, and Second Home, one of my best films, Second Home, done with the John F. Kennedy at Sea. There uh, was a aircraft woman carrier. in that. Aircraft carrier. Yeah. There was a woman in that, but she is covered with a large sweatshirt, hat, hair up, all directed by me, because I had already learned, oh my God, everything makes a difference in what kind of reaction I'm going to get, man to man. Old to young. So what did having a woman on the crew do for you in those military films? She got all kinds of access we could never have gotten, constantly. When we would send her to the captain, we got it. Happened all the time. We would, at Mobile Oil, too, in the oil rigs, we would get access just because she asked. Wow. And, of course, it's a different world today, <laughs> but don't tell me that what the guys look like and the girls look like, race, gender, age, clothing, smell. Mm. You're so close to these other mm. people. Mm. Do you smell like, you know, what we used to call canoe? That was the uh, perfume of my time, which all the poor guys bought and I bought. You know, as an interviewer, I've often wondered uh, what limitations there are for me as me asking the questions. You know, would it be better mm. if I were a woman in this case? Would it be better if I were younger or older? You know, that kind of thing. There's nothing I can do about it, unfortunately. So. <laughs> oh, there's a lot you can do about it. <laughs> oh, yeah. But it wouldn't work. But you have a certain kind of voice. 
and a kindness and a generally, I would be surprised if you have anything but a positive attitude to the people you bring on this show. Otherwise, you don't bring them here, it seems. Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. Um, uh, gee, I shouldn't say this, but I, I'm not always a 100% believer, you know? I mean, there's I have some distance from my interviewees. People think this show is an endorsement of whoever I mm. interview. Present company accepted, David. It's not always an endorsement. Mm-hmm. Um, it, so people may have the wrong idea. But yes, I do not feel comfortable setting up people for failure on this show. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, and you know how easy that is to do. I don't want to be a you shill, on it. the other hand. I don't want to be a shill for whatever You'd anybody. You'd never be a shill, Robert. <laughs> you make it very clear how you run the show. No, you're not a shill, but there are shills in the world. Mm. And they're hard to spot. For example, is Anderson Cooper a shill? I say no. I've watched him long enough now. I've seen his various reactions, and he's a beautifully three-dimensional human. Very rare. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but is um, is uh, Bill O'Reilly a shill? I don't think so, because he seems to lose it enough of the time and get genuinely <laughs> red in the neck. And when you get red in the neck, not a shill. But By the way, are, he says he's from Levittown. Did he you is, know him growing he's from up? from Levittown. Same age as me, approximately. Knows the culture really well and acts it, too, doesn't he? Uh, Same as I do, in a way. But he was one of those Catholic kids you talked about he earlier. He was a Catholic kid. They, and he's still a Catholic kid. The Catholics are and were believers in something which regularly beat us in debate. I was on my high school and college debate team. We were the best. Hofstra University. Two Jews, one Wasp, one Italian, one Irish. Catholic. He kicked butt. Why? Because of something I never understood until I met these guys, dogma. I asked him in college, and Bill Riley knows this very well, what is dogma? And he said, dogma is whether or not it's the truth has nothing to do with it. It is the truth for us. Truth is not about proving. It's not about being right or wrong. It is accepted. And that teaches you a lot about Bill Riley and the people who are so good, like him, Mm. great performers, if they believe it, it doesn't matter any longer what truth it is. It's their truth. In my case, I've been thrown so many times in documentaries where, and by the way, I think I told you this, but if I didn't, when I start a project, I write down all my prejudices, everything that I think about something, everything that I could possibly imagine. And I take that piece of paper and I put it aside. And when I first show up on the scene, I make for a short period of time, no assumptions, none. I know what my prejudices are. I know what I think to be true. And I watch. And oftentimes I find, holy mackerel, that's not it. I was wrong in my prejudice. Cross it off the list. Wow. This other one, I'm right. And I'm going to go that way. But I never step onto the scene stating my case before I've sniffed. And what does sniff mean? It means listening in a way where you shut your brain down from having an opinion. Hmm. No, you've never told me that before, and I, I'm fascinated to hear it uh, because, you know, going into a documentary, especially one where maybe you've sort of been hired to do it or maybe it's an assignment of some kind, it's not because you love the subject. Um, or maybe you have misgivings about the subject, about the person. Like, let's say you, as a left-leaning kind of guy, when you did this piece on Ronald Reagan, who was was he between... Governor of California and president at that time? He was in 1979. He was not yet the president. Right. So he was running for office. Okay. Norman Lear, the great liberal, hired me to interview several presidential candidates. He would arrange it, 
and I and a famous guy from Rolling Stone, whose name I don't remember, were the interviewers. <laughs> and um, by that point, by the late 1970s, a new David Hoffman had emerged. I was no longer a liberal. Socially, in terms of my values towards civil rights, women's rights, children's rights, rights, mm-hmm. I was more than a liberal. I was a radical. Human rights guy. Yes, a human rights guy. In terms of who was right and wrong, I had, through the 70s, found lots of people I thought were right that were really pretty ugly inside. And I found other people that I thought would be ugly that turned out to be very honorable. And here I am interviewing Ronald Reagan on a plane with uh, the interviewer, and the question comes up, abortion. And every one of his advisors told him, don't speak to this subject. You don't have to. You can win without this. And Ronald Reagan says to me, I'm probably going to speak about this subject, even though they're telling me I shouldn't. To me, it's wrong. I don't say that everyone should think like I do, but if you want my opinion, that's it. It was a brilliant moment, and I deeply honored that man for his ability to be himself. Do you remember the press conference? Glorious. He's asked a question. He says, you know what? He says, I don't know the answer to that question but I'll find out. The moment that press conference was over, his ratings skyrocketed, and guys like me knew why. When do you hear a politician say, I don't know? Mm. You know, and when he's president, I don't know. It was brilliant, Ronald Reagan. Yeah, the great spokes, the great character, but really, truthfully, he was him. Did he win you over? Yes. Huh. I voted for Ronald Reagan. He's the first Republican I voted for. Horrified my colleagues... How do you feel about it in retrospect? Uh, You know, the issues that have taken place are so complicated that I find it hard to go back and criticize, for example, letting go of all the legislation that protected us all. I forgot what they call that term. you Safety net? You you broke the legislative rules. Oh, I see. So the airlines could become cheap. Right, Well, they became cheap. And there's a lot I don't like about it because I liked it when it was $2,000 a ticket and somebody paid it. And my... The flight attendant treated me gloriously. That's gone now. <laughs> that and so many other things that we had as elitism that I didn't see that way are gone now. If you're a true believer, you got to know you are one. To be a great documentary filmmaker, a great storyteller, it's okay to be a true believer, but don't think it's the truth. Just know I am a true believer. I believe that Jesus walked this planet as the Son of God. It's perfectly acceptable to believe that. And I know that everybody doesn't see it that way, but for me, it's truth. That's honesty. Dishonesty Now, are you speaking is, for yourself there, David, or are you speaking for some... I'm speaking for a, a person who believes that. Right. I just wanted to I'm make clear. Yeah. Because people might think I'm you've converted. I, uh-huh. I don't know whether that's true. Or not. Maybe uh-huh. it is. Uh-huh. I'm not sure. And my current jobs are, too, this fall of 2013. A book called 33 Hope was written that looks at Jesus through his disciples' experiences as written. The guy took 30 years to write the book. And some folks I know are making a feature, a major feature film, $50 million, on this book. And they hired me. And they said, David, you're a disciple, and we need you on the team. I was honored. I looked in myself, and I read the book, and I said, yeah, I'm not sure I wouldn't have been a Jewish Christian. Horrifying to Jews some. Not so horrifying to others. My other job is Lab TV. TedMed, part of the TED community, the medical part, 
is creating a way that all of the labs in the United States, 40,000 labs backed by the government, will become public, open. I'm in charge of creating the style of video that thousands of videographers will use to do this. Wonderful jobs. Hmm. David, in the, the film we discussed the last time you were on the show, Everything Which Is Yes, uh, which documented the loss of your your dream home in the mountains overlooking Santa Cruz and of all the thousands of objects you had collected over a lifetime, or most of them at least, which were burnt. They included the original prints of most of your films, right? Mm. Things were charred. Things the, the film stock was melted. You retrieved some of it. And you thought you might make something out of these materials? Have you done that? No, but I made everything which is yes. When that film film, was over, I felt that what I had done to overcome this loss could be used by tornado victims, hurricane victims, other kinds of victims. And I did this film to the best of my ability, shot it, talked into the camera, got all the stuff together, and I made a pretty good movie, but it wasn't good enough. And I knew this guy, John Barrett, in Santa Cruz, who has a musical sense of storytelling, different from mine. And I said, hey, look at my material. And I called it material, even though it was a fine (laughs) cut. And I said, hey, could you make it better? And he made a film that goes way beyond me. And I noticed that every time uh, in America, there's a tragedy of some kind, from earthquake to airplane, up goes the viewership for the next few days of my film, because my keywords are disaster, overcoming tragedy, overcoming difficult times, and people really watched the whole movie. It helps them. I feel really good about that, although my primary purpose was to make a film for my sons that would be a record of me, should Mm -hmm. I, will I. No, I won't ever. Will I, Robert? (laughs) Yes, on. Well, you've told me you're a a hypochondriac, uh, and you related it to something your mom told you when you were young, which is that you should live every day as though it's your last. Or something like that. Am she I right? would say should. <laughs> she, she would say, if this was your last day, and it could be David, when I was seven years old and eight years old, is this how you'd like to live it? Boy, that plagues me today. I just left my son in camp for a week of science camp. He's 12. And I said to my wife when I left, we may never see him again. And she went, what? And I said, did you hear the last three sentences I said to him about his life? And she said, I did. And I said, that came directly from my feeling that I may never see him again. It's a pretty rough way to live. And it doesn't make it easy, but it does make you live every day. So when you put your head down on the pillow, you did right. In this interview with you, this may be the last time I speak. And I'm doing it as best I can right well, let's hope it's not the last, because I have enjoyed it, and not I'd like would. to do it again. <laughs> David, thanks so much for your time. Robert, great opportunity. Thank you. And you can see examples of David Hoffman's films on his YouTube channel, All in a Day. Just search for that, one word, All in a Day, and you will find many hours of viewing. You will find many hours of listening on our website, com, or you can subscribe on iTunes. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly saying goodbye until next week. Mm-hmm.